Good morning. Welcome to St. Paul's uh, Gym Bible Study this morning. So glad to once again be in person. I think in just the, the third or fourth week we've been able to be back in person. Just a few quick announcements uh, before we begin our study this morning. The first is uh, there are handouts on the gym bleachers, which I think everyone has, so we're good there. Um, the second announcement that may or may not affect um, your, you being here in this Bible study is starting on November 1st, we are going to resume our foundation Bible study and Sunday school as well. For those parents uh, who may be listening that uh, have, have children, um, we are on November 1st resuming Sunday school and our foundation's Bible study. Again, like many things, sign up is key. So I'd encourage anyone who's interested in that to make sure they sign up um, and check out the procedures and the precautions that we'll have uh, in both of those settings so that we can keep everyone as safe as possible as we continue to navigate uh, the coronavirus and um, what we're able to or not able to do. Uh, then the second announcement is that you may notice cameras, and this is really for those who may be listening um, at home that are St. Paul's members. Uh, we are going to be live streaming our Living Stone service today. We're giving it, uh, this is our first uh, try at it, so, but we are very, very uh, excited and encouraged by that possibility as well. Um, so, but before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for the many gifts you give to us, uh, especially as we look forward to the festival and the celebration of uh, Reformation Day. We thank you for the gift of the eternal gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would never let us stray from that gospel, that uh, you would never let us be consumed by the world, but rather be transformed, be renewed by Christ. Uh, we pray that you would guard our hearts and our minds as we go about uh, our daily lives this week and that we would honor you in all we do. And it's in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Now you heard me say in the prayer, uh, Reformation Day, and I should say uh, welcome to those in the gym, but not just those uh, in the gym, but those listening on AM 850 KFUO in St. Louis and worldwide on KFUO.org. Uh, and yes, it does seem a little early for Reformation Day, right? It's only October uh, 18th, and yet this is the earliest Reformation Day can possibly be because after next Sunday, the Sunday after that, um, is November 1st, which would be All Saints Day. So even though it's October 25th, and that may seem a little bit earlier than we're accustomed to having Reformation Day, uh, next Sunday is our festival, our celebration of Reformation Day. And so anytime you look at the readings for a festival, um, it, you change uh, a little bit from when you're looking at readings just assigned for a particular weekend from the propers, um, whether it's the 24th you know, Sunday after Pentecost or the second Sunday of Epiphany, etc. A lot of times in the, on those Sundays, the, the theme may not be quite um, so evident. But when we have a festival Sunday or a festival service, um, we all kind of come into that service with a pretty good idea of what the theme is going to be for the lessons of the week. And again, we will find that in the four lessons um, that, I've, that are assigned um, for this upcoming Reformation Day. But one of the things I think would be beneficial as we consider uh, the Word of God for next Sunday is thinking about what aspects of these pericopes, of these selected readings, um, what aspects of them directly uh, mimic or directly represent um, what Luther was trying to get across, what his reminder for the church was. Um, and I'll kind of highlight that as we go through each reading. But uh, as we think of the Reformation, it can be a lot of things for a lot of different people. Um, for some people, the Reformation is the start of a, a, the revolution of new ideas. For some people, the Reformation is... Um, the start of uh, a lot of changes, not only in Western Europe, but across North America and the world. But as uh, Lutherans, as LCMS, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod Lutherans, we believe very truly that the Reformation uh, was the church going back to the Word. That God's Word proclaims His Son, Jesus Christ. And that is the central message of everything that we do. That Christ is at the center of the Bible, that Christ is reflected in God's Word in everything. Um, and so, uh, as we kind of 
go through these, these lessons, as we go through these four readings, think about in which ways, um, if a church had lost that idea, how do these readings maybe reflect or would be points that Luther would like to make, um, would have liked to make using these verses? So the first lesson we're going to have is from John chapter 8, and it's John 8, 31 through 36. And uh, an interesting context to, to this section um, of John is that just before this section in John 8 uh, is what is often known as the, the light of the world discourse, or Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Um, and then a lot of the Jewish leaders get angry. They say, what are you talking about? Who's your father? And he's, Jesus says, if you knew my father, well then, or if you knew me, then you'd know my father. Um, and really, the last verse before our pericope begins provides a lot of context to what our reading uh, has to say. We read in John 8, verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So when we get to John 8, 31, and we read, so Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, we have an idea of what they had just been hearing just before uh, our reading begins. So those same people who heard Jesus say, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will not walk into darkness, but will have the light of light. Um, those who believed in him when he said these things, that's who he's addressing the next, um, I guess, a discourse to. So we begin in 8 verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And that word abide is very interesting in John. It comes uh, up not only a lot in the Gospel of John, but also in the letters that John wrote in 1 John um, and in, in 2 John as well, that if you abide, and when we think of that word abide, um, often maybe uh, we think of the hymn, Abide With Me, where we're asking God to be with us. But this is much different. Jesus is saying to those who believed in him, abide in my word. And in Greek, uh, the word, the sense of the word is truly to remain, uh, to be in it, but to stay in it. And that's uh, seen from this context, especially because he's addressing Jews who had believed in him. And so he is saying, remain in my word, remain in that word that you believe, remain in that promise in those words that I give to you, and you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's an interesting idea in today's world, isn't it? To know the truth. So many people have uh, taken truth and made it into a subjective, a what's my truth for me today sort of thing. Um, but we're reminded our faith is not like trying to argue who the MVP of the baseball season is or something subjective like that. That Christ, when he talks about truth, he is talking about the one true living God. That there is one truth and it is in the God of Abraham and his son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. That we are, um, we would claim objectively to have what is the truth about not only who we are, but the truth about what God has done for us. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Uh, and this, the response that comes after this is one of the most interesting, I think, probably verses, and maybe one of the most debated sections of at least uh, John, because it says, They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free. So one of the first things uh, we have to determine is who is they? And commentators differ on this because the people Jesus was addressing at first seemed to be the Jews who had believed in him. But the next response we hear from those being addressed seems to be from people who disagree or at least have a problem with what Jesus is saying. Uh, and com uh, commentators will, uh, there's been plenty of uh, ink uh, written, uh, plenty of pages written, plenty of uh, dissertations or theses written on who answered Jesus. 
It could very well be those same Jews who had believed in him, or it could very well be um, a group that did not believe in him, but that was there and listening, like the Pharisees in the Light of the World discourse from John 8 just previously. But what they say is, I think, even more interesting than necessarily who uh, was the group answering, because uh, what they say seems to go against not only their own history, but even their present circumstance. That we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you will be, that you say you will become free? Well, the first thing that I think most of us would point out is, well, if you've read Exodus, uh, you very much have been enslaved to someone, children of Abraham, and God freed you from that slavery. But even ignoring that, their present circumstance was not one of great autonomy or freedom. They were not free to just live in their homeland as they would like. No, they were under Roman rule. No, it wasn't a slavery as uh, perhaps we would think of it or as even as they were in Egypt. Um, But they weren't exactly free. And so on several levels, their response just completely misses the mark of not only their own situation um, of their past, their own situation presently, but also their situation before God. Jesus responds to them saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And now we get some specificity, some uh, a more focused understanding of what does Jesus mean when he says, uh, I will set you free, that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If the question was free from what? Well, then Jesus says, well, if you practice sin, if you do sin, you are a slave to sin. And that sense, that word practice, there's also some debate about what exactly that verb is indicating. Is that a habitual a continual and unrepentant doing of sin? Or is that, uh, as we all know far too well, and as we'll be reminded of in our epistle lesson from Romans, um, a reminder that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that no one can say, I am not a sinner, that I of my own merit am good enough to stand before God. In verse 35, uh, Jesus continues saying, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And it's interesting, just after this, and we we do, um, you know, context is very important, so sometimes looking both before and after kind of helps understand not only what Jesus said, but how these words were received. Right after this, in John 8.37, Jesus says, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Now when you hear that, it kind of helps maybe clarify who the they of verse, uh, verse 33, when it says they answered him, who that they is. And it does seem to be a second group, that there is a group listening who believed in what he had to say, that group that's mentioned in verse 30, that many believed in him, but that there also seems to be a group listening uh, that rejected what he said. Because as Jesus said, he says, my word finds no place in you. You seek to kill me. So you see the tension, the great tension um, that is existing in this conversation from uh, who Jesus is addressing, but also the words he is saying. These are not um, easy to to digest words for those uh, in Jerusalem, those who would be Israelites, um, the Jewish leaders of those days. This would not be uh, the first thing they'd be running home to celebrate. Uh, And in some ways, Jesus has hard words for us today. If we ourselves are in unrepentant, habitual sin, we need to repent of those sins. But the question I posed at the start of this is, since we know what the overall theme of the day is going to be, the Reformation, 
how does what we have here in John 8 uh, relate to what Luther uh, wanted to remind the church is God's truth in the Bible? And the, the easy one to, to kind of point out right away is that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That the truth that is in Christ Jesus sets us free from sin. We are not subjugated to any human authority, but that the Son himself sets you free. And therefore you will be free indeed. But there's also another part of this um, pericope just before that in verse 31 that I think does a great job of reminding us part of what the Reformation is all about. That we are called to abide in God's Word. That we know God's Word and are called to remain in it. Not trying to sign a bunch of extra things to what God says. That if those things supersede or those things take the place of God's Word in our life, we have uh, missed the point. That God's Word should be um, our rule and norm for our faith. And so if we rest on human tradition or what, uh, what a man says, if it goes against God's word, any human, then we are forgetting to abide fully in the word of God. Uh, and then the other thing that this, these pericopes kind of reminded me of is one of my favorite sections of scripture, which is probably why it reminded me of it. But uh, Romans chapter 6, and I'll just read for you quickly from Romans 6, uh, verses 5 through 12. Uh, and this is the section where Paul talks about uh, baptism. And it starts with the great question uh, that he receives. What should we do? Go on sinning so that grace may abound? This grace is a good thing. Should we sin extra so we get more of it? And of course Paul says, no way! But if we go down a little bit to verse 5, Paul reminds us that if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So also, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Paul reminds us that in our baptism, that we are set free from sin. Not that we don't sin, but that we are called to not, uh, to use the words from John, abide in sin. That we are to abide in our freedom. And that when we sin, we are to flee. So that we ought not to just give in to our mortal passions. Now, uh, if we had to take a poll of how many of us have done this perfectly, of course, no one would be able to uh, say that they have. Yet it's a great reminder that the freedom we have in Christ is also very truly not only freedom from sin, death, and the devil, but a freedom to live out the will of God. A freedom to be, um, as Luther would say, most dutiful servant to others. That we are free between us and God. That we have nothing um, that we have to accomplish. God has done it all on our behalf. But when it comes to others, those sitting here, those we come across in our daily lives, we are to serve them as God would want us, as God's will would call us to serve them. So at this point, I will open it up to any questions, if there are any questions from this first reading from the Gospel of John. No? All right. Well, then let's move on to the psalm of the day. Uh, a very familiar psalm with a very familiar hymn that, uh, was, that was inspired by it that we will be singing next week. 
uh, for Reformation Day, Psalm 46. Uh, and it uh, begins by saying this is a psalm by the sons of Korah. And there's some ambiguity there. We're not exactly sure. There's going to be a couple moments like that. But one of the things is the word salah in the psalms. We know it's a musical term. We don't know exactly what it means. But when, it, when we uh, hear the sons of Korah, uh, there's two possibilities. One, that it is the writer of the psalm. Or two, that these were those who would be singing the psalm. That this was perhaps a, a choir of sorts or those who would be um, uh, singing uh, the psalm during uh, either a worship setting or another festival setting. But we begin in Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and our strength. And that right away highlights the theme of this psalm, that God is our uh, we should have complete trust in God as our strong refuge, as our strength. And not to spoil what's going to come later, but as Luther would put it, as a fortress, right? And that's what we'll get later on into the psalm. But continuing into verse 1, God is a very present help in trouble. Boy, how easy has that been to forget over the last uh, six to nine months or so? That during this year, even in the midst of hardship or, or trouble, God is a very present help. That he's not distant, far away, waiting to swoop in. That he is very present in our lives. He's a very present help in our lives. And it is because God is that very present help in our lives that we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, Though the mountains tremble at its swelling, you think of these things, the turmoil that these events represent, more than just natural disasters, but truly any turmoil, any earthly turmoil that threatens our body or our soul. And we've gone through a few of those in, the, in this year, haven't we? We've gone through a few of those uh, <laughs> moments where it seems like things are rising up against us. Yet we're reminded that that's not when we give way to fear. Um, rather, as we read in verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. But being in the city of God... Being where God is dwelling means it's not like being in the midst of those earthly turmoils. The city of God does not act like the earth with its turmoil, with its strife, with its anger, with its resentment, with its warfare. No, the city of God, with God's help, where God dwells, um, will be a place of joy. In fact, those rivers uh, whose streams, they make glad the city of God. That those in the city of God would be made joyful. Um, and of course, after what I preached on last week, I don't want to spend too much time on joy because I feel like we've covered it a lot um, the last couple weeks. But it is a great reminder again in Psalm 46 that um, that river, uh, that being in the city of God, being of the people of God, means we are made glad in Him. In verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, and the earth melts. I, I don't know if I quite fully appreciated this before, but what a great uh, verse to depict the almightiness, the power of God. That when the whole world is consumed with itself, as they rage, as kingdoms totter, all God does is utter his voice, and the earth melts. That that's all God would have to do. And it's an amazing reminder that uh, and in some ways it's a, a solidification of what was said at the start of the psalm that when God is our refuge and our strength, we don't have to worry which comes our way because He is more powerful than that. Not that we're immune from worry again, but that we don't worry like everyone else has to worry. That he could, at a moment, utter his voice and the earth 
Melphat describes the almightiness, the omnipotence, the power of God. And then verses 7 through 11 um, are kind of uh, bookended by uh, this phrase, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And whenever that word host comes up, it's a good reminder that uh, we all are somewhat familiar with what that is in Hebrew because it's Sabaoth. Um, And that's in a variety of hymns or different settings or even our liturgy. Um, But it's a reminder that when we say the word Sabaoth, we're not just kind of using a a funny way to say Sabbath or something like that, but that it is um, truly the angelic armies, the host of angels, heavenly host. Um, If we think back to the the Christmas story, in the sky there are a heavenly host, praising God and saying, um, and so... The Lord of hosts, the Lord who commands angels is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That word fortress is really interesting. It's from uh, the Hebrew word shagav, uh, which means to be high up. But to be high up in a specific sort of sense, to be high up safely. So you think about uh, perhaps when maybe your children were younger, you had a very nice uh, china set, or you had a nice dish or a vase, um, you probably didn't leave it at ground level where the four-year-old could pick it up and potentially break it, right? You set that item, that valued item, way up there where no one else could reach, and that's how you knew it was safe. It, it's kind of the same sense with this verb, uh, shigav, that uh, to be high up means you're uh, above where your enemy can get to. And the, the noun, mishigav, uh, which just, you add a M to a lot of Hebrew verbs and they become nouns, means a place that is like that. So this is sometimes used to describe walls, the, the, the fortification of a city. If they're uh, this way, they are too high for the enemy to get over. That they're not going to be able to climb up and, and penetrate the city walls. Um, but here, it's a reminder that... Uh, God's for, being of God, knowing God, having him as our fortress means that we're at that secure height. That the devil can't touch us because Christ has set us free. Um, and this is where we will, I think, if we have time, go through a mighty fortress. I printed it uh, along with the epistle lesson, or the first reading, I should say, because it's just two verses, the, the first reading um, we should have some time to go through it, but you'll see that idea that we are at that secure height throughout uh, the hymn. And one commentator even put that the, to say that the God of Jacob is our fortress to, is to say he is the embodiment of security. I thought that's a great way to put it, that, that God is the embodiment of security for us. We continue into verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. That he, again, this kind of goes back to what was being said in uh, verse 6, that he utters his voice and these things go away. And in verse 10 We read, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. One thing that we can sometimes forget about culture in these days, in in the time of the psalm and even in the New Testament, Old Testament, to be able to be still was a luxury. And perhaps we understand that more and more now because our lives are so much on the go, on the go, on the go, on the go. Um... But to be able to be still was a luxury. Because to be still meant uh, you didn't have an enemy chasing you. To be still meant you didn't have to desperately search for food or water because you were dying of hunger and thirst. Uh, oftentimes to be still meant that you had a, uh, a specified encampment, that you weren't having to try and find safe shelter for the evening. Um, and so... In our modern context, we don't always take all those meanings and remember what a luxury that would be in those days to be still. To just be still and know 
that the Lord is God. That he will be exalted among the nations and exalted in the earth. Uh, I kind of put it in quotation marks. Uh, we relax because God's got this. You know, you think of those movies where, you know, the hero jumps in and says, I got it, I got it, I'll take care of it, right? Uh, in our lives, we need so often that remembrance that, relax, God's got this. God has got your life in his hands. Uh, God has got uh, our problems in his hands. God has got uh, his plan for us. <laughs> He's got it. And we just need to trust um, that he does what he says he does. Because time and time again, that's exactly what we experience. And yet, we so often can be consumed with ourselves and think, I got to do this. I need to do this. I need to worry about this. Or relax because God's got it. And then the psalm ends uh, repeating what we read in verse 7 and verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So I'll open it up to questions. Um, any questions on Psalm 46? And yes, Psalm 46 was the inspiration for Luther to write A Mighty uh, Fortress. Uh, as many people are aware, that's why I have that uh, coming after the first reading. If we get to it, or I'm trying to, but we'll see. Um, all right, so any questions? Yes, Bruce. Salah? Yeah, so that's a musical term. We don't exactly know what it, what it connotates. Um, it clearly meant something uh, either liturgically or for the music director or the singers, but we're not exactly sure what the specifics of it are. Um, there's lots of hypotheses, or hypotheses, I should say. Um, there's lots of speculation, but to give one definitive answer that this is exactly what it's for, it, it, it's tough, and part of that is we are so removed from uh, that culture, but uh, they, it, it's common across uh, quite a few psalms, you'll see that, Salah, so that must have been uh, obviously something that they knew what it was all about, um, but we're not really sure. All right. Very good question. All right. Any other questions before we go on to Romans chapter 3? No. All right, perfect. Romans 3, 9, or sorry, Romans 3, verse 19, where we read Paul say, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, for the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I... It's interesting to kind of go back to maybe your confirmation days. Uh, what are the three uses of the law? And I do this with our eighth graders, and we go through it, and, and every time um, I've done it, they usually nod and go, oh, yeah, that's right, that makes sense. I see how that works. But the three uses of the law um, that really point out where we not only fall short, but what God's will for us is, is uh, that God's, God's law uh, works as a curb, that it restrains our sinful behavior, that when we desire to do X, it reminds us, no, that's not what you ought to be doing. God's law uh, serves as a mirror, and as I like to describe it, it's not just one of those mirrors that you can't see well in, no. It's a mirror that's like with the hyper-white, ultra-fluorescent lights where you can see all these spots that you didn't even know you had on your face or on your ears, and you're wondering, where did I even get all those flaws? Um, that's how the law works. It shows us our sin. It shows us our sinful ways, our sinful thoughts, our sinful um, inclinations, our sinful words. And then the third use of the law is that the law works as a guide. That uh, it, it works to guide us in God's will throughout our lives. That we ought um, to follow the law because it is God's will for our lives. And so often when we think, what should I do in this situation? Um, many of us, even today, and, and myself included, can sometimes forget to think, wait, what does God say I should do? And so the law works as a guide, something to guide us in accord with God's will, in accord with his word of command in our lives. And then we get into verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That word manifested, um, it's important that it, it, sometimes that can be um, misconstrued that, and the context makes it clear this isn't what it means, but I just want to be clear. It's not that it was this separate thing that just appeared. Rather, it was revealed to be separate from the law. Though the law bore witness to it. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. That the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, the gospel is not the law. Now, both are good. But the law would remind us that uh, we are not righteous. The gospel reminds us that on account of God, we are, in fact, uh, righteous. Not because we deserve it or we've done enough righteous things, but because Christ's righteousness has been brought to us. Uh, and it's a great reminder as well that the, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. They testify to Jesus. Uh, this is what's brought up not only in uh, the book of Acts, where Peter reminds those uh, listening that to him, the prophets, to Jesus, I should say that that's the him, all bear witness. And in other places in the Gospel of John, um, Jesus himself even mentions this. But there's also one uh, se section of Isaiah that I think talks about this that we sometimes don't always associate with this, but is a good reminder, another example of where the law and the prophets testified, bore witness to the Gospel, the righteousness of God being revealed in Christ. And that's in Isaiah 59, uh, starting at the end, or this part B, I guess you could say, of verse 15 of Isaiah 59. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him, that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising sun. For he will come like a rushing stream uh, which the wind of the Lord drives. A redeemer will come to Zion. Those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. What I love about that is it's a reminder that we are so desperately in need of a Savior. That we would be without hope without Jesus. That the Lord saw that there was uh, no one who was just. The Lord saw that there was no one, that there was no justice in the land and it displeased Him. And so His own arm, the arm of God, would bring Him salvation. And God's righteousness would uphold him. That God, knowing how broken and flawed we are, took it upon himself to bring salvation to us. That is an excellent reminder every day of the week, but especially, I think, in times like this when there's so much division and strife and frustration and annoyance with everything we have to do, everything going on, even the you know, a crazy and chaotic election that... Um, you know, is reaching its conclusion, the reminder that in this poor, broken, miserable world, God looked out and brought His arm, took it upon Himself to bring salvation to us. Um, so that's just one of those sections of Isaiah that doesn't always get uh, brought up when we talk about what does the prophet, or what prophets bear witness to uh, Jesus coming, uh, but it's one of my uh, favorites, or one that I at least remember in my mind, when I read this. And we continue into verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
That is exactly what the prophets and the law bear witness to. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. You think of what those first two verses reminded us of, that by works of the law no human being will be justified, and that we know that whatever the law says speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And then when we get to verse 21 and we have the, but now, this is what could be our reality, a very sad reality in verses 19 and 20, because we don't uphold the law. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. But now the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. That no matter how righteous or unrighteous you think you might be, there is no distinction. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And we continue into verse 25 after uh, we read, whom God put forth as a propitiation. And that's actually an interesting word. I should probably stop just for a minute because in Greek and Roman literature, it's a kind of odd word, but it's not super uncommon. Um, but it's specifically uh, an instrument. And this is from uh, the... BDAG lexicon for those um, wondering. An instrument to regain the goodwill of the de deity or something to serve as a means of reconciliation. That's what it means in the Greek and in the Roman literature. And of course, we can see how Christ is that means of reconciliation for us. But that's one of those things that um, it's a word that's a little tough. We don't use propitiation too much. At least I don't use that in my daily conversation all the time. But it's a great reminder of the depth of what is meant when we read that Jesus is a propitiation for our sins. That he is the one, uh, the instrument that would allow us to be reconciled with God. That he would be the means of that reconciliation. And in verse 26, uh, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that no one is justified by faith. Uh, we, sorry, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That doesn't mean we don't follow God's law. But it means that's not how we are saved. That's not how we are justified. That's not how um, our sins are atoned for. There's no divine scoreboard. One bad thing, okay, I did a good thing over here, now we're back to even. No, we're justified apart from works of the law. Uh, and it's a great reminder, I said at the beginning, you know, what, does, what do these verses have to do with the central idea of the Reformation. Well, here's a great example that we are justified apart from works of the law. That this is not Luther writing these words, this is Paul writing. This is God's word reminding us that we are not justified, we are not made more righteous than others, uh, or somehow um, need to do X, Y, and Z in order to be saved. No, we are justified apart from works of the law. That we are redeemed in Christ, that Christ is our propitiation, our means of reconciliation. Not that we're in Bible study every Sunday, even though I love having you here, don't get me wrong. Not that we're in church every Sunday, though again, love seeing you at church and what wonderful gifts we receive there, but that's not what justifies us. It's not us, it's not us being able to check enough boxes. We are justified apart from the works of the law, that Christ is our only means of reconciliation. Uh, 
And that's something at the time of Luther, the church had very much struggled with. This was one of Luther's great uh, fights, great struggles with what he saw. Because there were means of the law, works of the law, things you could do in order to earn your salvation, in order to better yourself, your, better your chances of God saving you. And Luther uh, went to many different verses, but I think this one is one that certainly embodies what he wanted the church to remember. That we as Christians are justified apart from the works of the law. That Jesus is our righteousness and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. All right. Any questions on Romans 3? No. All right. Very good. Then our first reading, and this one is definitely uh, one of the more odd readings probably for Reformation Sunday. In fact, you're probably wondering, oh, why include, why include this? Um, it's from Revelation chapter 14. And it's in the midst of um, a vision of three specific angels. And I don't, we don't have time. I mean, it, we could spend hours getting into all of this. But we're just going to look at these two verses so we can, because uh, we've got about 10 minutes left. Um, so in verse 6 of Revelation 14, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Um, so there's two things that may strike us as a little odd here. One, uh, well, I guess they're, they're two... When they're combined, it maybe seems a little bit uh, backwards or perhaps problematic to us. Uh, the angels flying with the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. Uh, I'll just say it right now. That's why this is on Reformation Sunday, that Luther's focus on the gospel, um, his reminder to the church that the gospel is the central um, to our faith is why this is included. But do you notice what? Uh, that angel says, the one with the eternal gospel to proclaim to the people on the earth. He says in verse 7, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth. Um, at first it can seem like, wait a minute, I thought we just talked about uh, the gospel of, uh, is Jesus being our means of reconciliation with God. Or at the very least, the good news of God proclaimed in Jesus. Why? Um, does this angel say, fear God and give him uh, glory? Well, it's a call to repentance. We're reminded that uh, we are not innocent. In fact, God's judgment is coming. And yet, before that time has come, we need to acknowledge what we've done. We are called to repentance. And God freely forgives us in that repentance. Uh, in some ways, it's a, a reverse of how we ordinarily present the gospel. That um, It's a proclamation that there is judgment to those who reject Jesus. And like I said, this is perhaps one of the tougher readings for Reformation Sunday. It's not exactly the first one. I don't think a lot of pastors circle that they're ready to preach on um, for Reformation Sunday. Sunday, well, though some may, um, but it is a reminder that there are consequences for those who reject Jesus. It goes along a little bit with what we read in John 8, um, verse 37, where Jesus says, uh, you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. When his hour of judgment comes, there are consequences for those who reject who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. Now, uh, this is, this, with five minutes left, this could get us into a can of worms, but are there any questions from Revelation 14? I know it's tough because it's two verses, and like I said, we could spend hours um, just on chapter 14 of Revelation. Okay, well then let's go ahead, and I printed out there for you a hymn 656 from our LSB, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, one that is very familiar, and if you compare that uh, to Psalm 46, see if we can find some of those similarities um, 
or why perhaps Luther was inspired to write such a hymn based on Psalm 46. So a mighty fortress is our God, a trusty shield and weapon. Of course, that's pretty easy. You look at uh, verse 11 or verse 7, and we read that the God of Jacob is our fortress. Um, and that God is a very present help in trouble. What are the two things you need when you're in trouble? Well, at least in these days. Now we probably need, a, I don't know, a cell phone or a charger. Um, that would be what we, we would... Uh, but in those days, if you're out taking a walk or maybe you're traveling and you came upon trouble, what would be the things you need? Well, a shield would be a good start because usually uh, there's probably going to be some sort of altercation. And then a sword, again, to defend yourself if need be. So that uh, a mighty fortress is our God, a trusty shield and weapon. He helps us free from every need that hath us now o'ertaken. The old evil foe now means deadly woe. Deep guile and great might are his dread arms on fight. In fight, on earth is not his equal. Now, this is a, one of those kind of trick questions. Sometimes I'll even ask confirmands. On earth is not his equal is referring to who? The devil. Now, what does that mean by that? If you want to rely on yourself to stand up against the devil, um, you're in trouble. That this isn't anything that you can fix on your own, that we need to rely on that refuge and strength of God, that we need to rely on the God of Jacob being our fortress. Because we can't do it on our own. And that's okay because God has done it on our behalf. Um. And verse 2, with might of ours cannot be done. I guess I kind of just said that, <laughs> right? Uh, with might of ours cannot be done. Soon were our loss affected. But for us fights the valiant one whom God himself elected. Think back to that, what I said from Isaiah 59, that God selected his arm to be salvation. That God had appointed Jesus to be the propitiation for us, as we read from Romans but fights for us the valiant one whom God himself elected. Ask ye, who is this? Jesus Christ it is. Of Sabaoth, Lord, and remember we covered Sabaoth, right? That's not just Sabbath, that's literally of the angelic armies of the, the heavenly host, uh, that very Lord, and there's none other God. He holds the field forever. Verse 3, though devils all the world should fill, all eager to devour us, we tremble not, we fear no ill, they shall not overpower us. Uh, and you think of Romans uh, 6, uh, in verse 2, therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way. And everything that comes after that with the sea roaring and the mountains shaking and swelling up, uh, we would tremble not and fear no ill. They shall not overpower us. This world's prince may still scowl fierce as he will. He can harm us none. He's judged. The deed is done. One little word can fell him. So you think about what I said about what it meant to be a fortress, to be set safely up, that you can't uh, be touched, that you are protected because nothing can get up there. And before the days of guns or rockets or uh, grenades or things that we could shoot with jet propulsion, uh, you think of what it meant to be at a place so high that you couldn't throw something up there or build something to get up there. Uh, that meant you were, you were safe. You were covered. You were taken care of. That's why so often people built cities um, on a hill or built cities around uh, rocky areas where they could have the city as the highest point because if you can't get up to something uh, in those days, you can't attack it. Uh, so one little word can fell him. That's verse 6. He utters his voice and the earth melts. That God's word is performative. That when Jesus says it is finished, when God says you are forgiven, those things are true. Those, one little word, 
though no one on earth is the devil's equal, one little word from God fells him. And then finally, the last chapter before we wrap up for this morning. The word they still shall let remain, nor any thanks have for it. He's by our side upon the plain with his good gifts and spirits. And take they our life, goods, fame, child, and wife. Those, though these all be gone, our victory has been won. The kingdom ours remaineth. Uh, that last stanza is such a great reminder that it is uh, not about the things of this world that we rely on. And, and so often right now, if you look at whether it's the election or what's going on with coronavirus, uh, we are consumed with keeping um, ourselves or our stuff for ourselves. And so that last stanza there, stanza four, is such a great reminder that no matter what would be taken from you, whether it's your house, your things, your status, your own family or spouse, though those things be gone, you don't need to be afraid because the victory has been won and the kingdom ours remaineth. So with that, I'll open it up. Are there any last questions before we end with prayer this morning? No? All right. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the excellent reminder uh, that, these, uh, that your word in these verses provide. That uh, Paul and, and the psalmist and Jesus himself reminds us that uh, we are free to be your children. That you have done what it takes to redeem us, have been the propitiation for our sin. We pray that we would keep uh, the, love, the loving kindness of Christ at the forefront of how we interact with others, especially in the midst of chaotic or trying times. And in all that we do, we would never forget the true gift, the true focus uh, of the gospel. That your son died for us, died for a poor and broken, miserable world. And that we need not fear, but we can trust in you and eternal life in his name. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Uh, before I have you guys, uh, I'll leave. If you could do what you did um, and have been doing, which is just take a wipe and just wipe where your seat, where you've been seated, just so that when Livingstone started.